It's time to talk trades. It's time to talk free agency. It's time to talk signings and and really talk about what the Utah Jazz will do in a huge, potentially franchise-changing offseason. Welcome, everybody, to the Salt City Hoops podcast. Uh, I'm Dan Clayton, the associate editor of saltcityhoops.com. I've been promising for a while to do something of a, um, a Q&A-type podcast focused on kind of the cap mechanisms and how trades work and, and signings and that sort of thing. Um, that's not, I think, precisely what we have for you today. Most of them are, um, you know, qualitative in nature, meaning they're not about a salary cap rule or a particular mechanism for the Jazz to acquire players. They're largely about what I think, what we think, what people think the Jazz will do this offseason. So um, there's a fair amount of stuff here. Got a lot of questions. Um, depending on how long-winded my answers are, I might get this done in one or or more likely might split it into two parts. We'll we'll see how it's going. Um, for now, let's, let's talk about your questions. Um, I, I guess... You know, far and away, the thing that I keep answering different versions of or and I keep hearing discussed on jazz Twitter is this question of how can they go about getting a marquee free agent from another team? So people have asked about Chris Paul, about Paul Millsap um, when when Paul opted out of his contract, his final year of his contract with Atlanta. People have asked about Kyle Lowry as an option if the jazz don't re-sign George Hill. So I get that a lot, and and here's the thing. It's kind of a non-starter, and the reason it's kind of a non-starter is that the Jazz, functionally speaking, do not have cap room. Um, the reason they can sign their own stars, like Gordon Hayward and George Hill, is because they have what's called those those players' bird rights. They can sign those players for anything up to their maximum salary, which in those guys' case is going to be about $30 million. But to sign another team's free agents, when you don't have those those free agent rights, those incumbent team rights, you need to have um, you need to have cap space to get it done. And if you look at just the committed salary on the Jazz, if you've got your little spreadsheet that shows you what Derek Favors is going to make and what Joe Johnson is going to make and what Alec Burks is going to make then you might think, hey, the Jazz have cap space. The Jazz only have X number of dollars committed and the salary cap is going to be 101, so they have cap space. But they don't. And I, if I can be of service today to Jazz Nation, let me just disavow you of the notion that the Jazz have cap space. And, and I'll tell you why. And the big thing is free agent holds. So in order for the Jazz to keep those free agent rights to guys like Hayward and Hill, they have to... Uh, they have to put kind of a hold of a, of a specific amount for each guy um, to kind of reserve that cap space. The reason that that happens is otherwise teams could just go out and use all of their quote-unquote cap space, get right back to the cap, and then turn around and sign their own guys and say, ha-ha, we got you, and be you know paying in some cases two times the salary cap. So instead what they do is they have a designated percentage based on the type of free agent you are. Um, Gordon Hayward, and by the way, this goes into a question that at Gooby Hero on Twitter asked me, which is what he, he didn't understand why Gordon Hayward's cap hold is 24 million when he um, was only set to make 16 um, on this last player option year. Well, if he opts out, which he, he's going to, everyone expects him to, then the reason why his cap hold is 24 million is because it's based on a percentage 
of what he made last season. Last season, he made just over $16 million. And because he is a bird-free agent, not coming off of... Um, not coming off of a rookie contract, and he's making at least an average NBA salary. Uh, because of those three things, his cap amount is 150%. So he will count on the Jazz's cap at $24.1 million until he signs somewhere else, in which case that number would turn to zero, right? The, the Jazz can't be charged for a player that now belongs to someone else or until he signs with the Jazz for a different amount, in which case that new amount would become his cap hold um, or, or his you know his actual amount on the salary spreadsheet. So Gordon Hayward has one of those. George Hill has one of those. Shelvin Mack has one of those. Joe Ingles has one that's actually higher than, his, than the qualifying offer. His QO is $2.7 million, but in order to maintain the rights to re-sign him, let alone match other teams' contracts, they have to hold aside $4.18 million for Joe. Um, they also have to hold amounts for their upcoming draft picks. The 24th pick and the 30th pick have cap holds of about $1.58 and $1.39 together. So right there, you're looking at pretty close to $3 million that the Jazz have to set aside as soon as they use the 24th pick and the 30th pick unless they trade those picks before then. Then there's the fact that, you know, Howell Neto and Joel Ballenboy are still on there, even though their their salaries are non-guaranteed. Boris Diaw's salary is non-guaranteed. But if you add all that stuff up, everything that counts on the Jazz's cap, then not only do they not have salary cap space, but they're actually 21, yeah, $21.6 million over the salary cap with just, you know, with their salary their non-guaranteed contracts, and their free agent amounts. Um, so in order to sign a guy who's going to make $35 million, like Chris Paul, um, and yes, Chris Paul will make $35 million next year. So in order to clear that space, the Jazz would need to clear away not just $21.6 million, but $21.6 million plus the $35 million that they'd need to carve away for Chris. So you're talking about the Jazz needing to create $57 million um, off of what today counts on their salary cap spreadsheet for the coming year. So that might be confusing. Let me give you an example. Let's say that they, let's say that they figure, okay, if we're, if the goal is to sign George Hill, uh, sorry, if the goal is to sign Chris Paul, let's wipe away George Hill's free agent amount, right? So that's 12 million that they can erase. And let's say that they're going to trade Alec Burks, uh, in a, in kind of a salary dump. <clears throat> All right, his 10.8 million gone. Let's say that they're going to waive Boris Diaw by July 17th, which would make his 7.5 million in salary uh, fully non-guaranteed. So they would they would be on the hook for zero of that salary. All right, so there's three guys. I've just taken Alec Burks, George Hill, and Boris Diaw off. Let's go ahead and take Shelvin Mack too, because again, I think if you're signing Chris Paul, you're you're probably not bothering with Shelvin Mack's free agent hold. So now the Jazz are preserving the right to sign Gordon Hayward and, and Joe Ingles, but they've they've gotten rid of Shelvin Mack's rights, George Hill's rights, they've salary dumped Burks, and they've cut Boris Diaw. They still have $13 million in cap space, meaning they're still about $22 million short from being able to offer Chris Paul his max. 
22. So now you say, okay, well now they also have to give up Derek Favors and Joe Johnson for nothing. And that almost gets them there. In fact, that gets them there, except that now their roster is so thin that now they have to be charged a minimum salary hold for for any roster spots below 12 that they have filled with a player or with a player's rights. So in other words, even trading Derek and Joe isn't enough. Now you also have to trade Lyles or Hood for nothing. Let's say they let's say they trade Lyles. Now they can do it. Now they can go to Chris Paul and they can say, "All right, the core is going to be Chris Paul, Gordon Hayward, and Rudy Gobert. Pretty good big three, right? Like that's a really good big three. You've got an all-star, you've got an all-NBA center, and you've got a guy who, when he plays full seasons, he is an MVP candidate. So that's that's great. Behind that, here's what you've got. You've got Dante Exum. You maybe have Joe Ingles. You've, you've preserved the right to sign Joe Ingles. You have Rodney Hood. You have... Neto and Ballenboy, if you want them, they're they're non-guaranteed. And you have two draft picks, and then you have whatever you can fill around that with minimum salary, guys. It's not ideal. And in fact, it's not even it's not even a guarantee that Chris Paul would say yes to, to that arrangement, right? Um, you know, if Chris Paul knows what it takes to get the Jazz to a point where they could offer him his max, he might say, well, that doesn't leave me with a competitive roster. And yeah, that's a good big three. But guess what else is a big three? A good big three. DeAndre Jordan, Blake Griffin, and Chris Paul. That's a good big three. And it's a big three that, despite a lot of star power and three really good players, has not made it to the conference finals. So I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's enough. And and and, and beside that, even from the Jazz perspective, like that's not getting great use out of assets. Like, if you're giving away Derek Favors and Joe Johnson and Trey Lyles just for nothing, like, hey, give us a pick, a future pick or something that doesn't cost money because we're just trying to get that salary figure as low as possible, I'm just not sure that that's great asset management for a franchise who, for years, they've all they've been about is creating assets so that they would have flexibility to, to do a lot of different things. Um, now, what they could do, uh, because the rules for trades are different than the rules for free agent signings. Um, if they were to, if they were to approach the Clippers and say, "Hey, Clips, you're going to lose Chris Paul anyway. Why not get something back for him? We'll cobble together a package that is roughly equal in salary. Then you don't have to, um, then you don't have to clear." You don't have to get to 30 million under the cap. You don't have to clear 57 million away. You just have to compile enough salary to get close to what Chris Paul's salary would be. In this case, the Jazz would have to trade, they'd have to send out about 28 million in salary, right? So, in other words, Boris Diaw, Derek Favors, Alec Burks gets it done. Now, caveat, <laughs> a bunch of caveats. Uh, sign in trades. Are, are are rarer than sign-and-trade rumors are. Um, it's, it's hard to orchestrate because three parties have to be interested in the arrangement, right? Um, like, that's a no-brainer for the Jazz. The Jazz would make that deal. If all it took was, 
you know, Derek Favors, who they, they like, they love, he's a big part of who they are, but there's obvious questions about Derek Favors' fit. Um, and Burks, who probably may be gone anyway just because of the salary crunch, and Boris Diaw, who, who I can't imagine they were going to pay $7.5 million anyway, you know, they would do that deal. Now, would the Clippers do that deal? Probably not, right? Like, even if they understand that Chris Paul is out the door anyway, they could probably find something that matches what they need better than adding Derek Favors to a roster that already include, already has Blake and, De- and DeAndre. Unless, unless they know Blake is leaving too. I mean, things could get really weird for the Clippers and they could just decide to reset and get young and, and go back to the well in terms of being a lottery team again. Um, and if that's the case, then, you know, hey, maybe all bets are off. Um, now, do, does that scenario make sense for other teams that have star free agents? Maybe. I mean, um, you know, Paul Mills, we just, we talked about Millsap too, right? This, this question pertains to Millsap as well. Again, same thing. If the Jazz want to sign him to his max, they have to clear away $57 million in salary and holds to be able to do that. But if they want to trade for Paul Millsap, then they could go to Atlanta and offer up Atlanta native Derek Favors and and Alec Burks and Boris Diaw. And Diaw, they, the, the, the Hawks could cut without it costing them anything. And, and if that's something that the Hawks are interested in, knowing that they might lose Paul anyway, then, then hey, maybe the Jazz have a deal. Then you have to get into the question of, do you really want to be paying upwards of $30 million a year for Paul Millsap, who's 32? But, but that, that whole, and I know that that was mathy, and I know that there's a lot going on there, but, but basically, if there's anything I want you to take from the last three or four minutes of dialogue, it's that for the Jazz to sign a max free agent and do it without the help of the, of the current team in a sign-and-trade, they need to reduce $57 million in salary cap holds and or salary. And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. So I think I've beat that one to death, um, as well as answering Gooby Hero's question along the way. The, the rest of the questions here kind of fall into three broad, four broad categories. Um, there's a few questions about Hayward that I'll start with. Uh, then we'll talk about George Hill and the point guard situation. Then we'll talk about some trade stuff. And then the fourth category is just a bunch of catch-all stuff. I, I think the way this is going to go is I'm probably going to get through those first three categories. And then the last category is, is so random and eclectic that that's probably going to be the one we we take into a part two. But let's see how we can, how much we can get done. Uh, Kyle Lajeunesse, I think it's pronounced, asked what the general feeling is around Gordon Hayward staying. Um, yeah, I, th- I think what we're hearing around, you know, around the NBA media from, from Woj, from Zach Lowe, from others, um, Chris Mannix has said kind of roughly the same thing. Um, I think what we're hearing in those channels, Kyle, is similar to what I've heard from people who are plugged in. And I'd say this with the caveat that, that I'm not, you know, I'm no longer around the arena 82 times a year. Right. So, or 41. 
Um, obviously I know people who hear things and I, I hear things from friends of friends and secondhand sources. And I don't report on a lot of those because I, I think that's shady to do that. And I want to respect the people who, who tell me things in confidence. But, but basically I would say that I think everyone I've spoken to has broadly speaking, that same sort of cautious optimism about Gordon. Um, I think there's a sense out there that, um, the jazz have shown him enough. I think there is a sense out there that uh, that the Jazz are at least as far along in their um, in their build as Boston is, um, and much farther than any other team is who who could make a run at Hayward. Um, so if it's really about the things Gordon has said, which is you know he's going to take care of his family for sure, but he also wants it to be a winning situation um, and a situation where you know he can be important on a, on a competitive team and all those things. I think the jazz have a great shot. Um, a, a side question has come in a couple of times, people wondering, couldn't Gordon, uh, wait until next year. In other words, take the opt in this year for just over 16 million, wait to see if he's all NBA next season. And if he is take the designated veteran player contract, which would basically speed up the, uh, the point in his career at which he could get 35% of the salary cap instead of 30. Um, he could, I mean, that's an option. Uh, I think it would be a more realistic option if, if Hayward felt like he was a shoe in to be all NBA next year, but I don't think he is. Um, you know, there are other players that finished outside of the other forwards who finished outside of all NBA and above where Gordon Hayward is. So I think he'd have to he'd have to weigh that, um, and also just the fact that if he signs a thirty point three million dollar contract with the Jazz this off season that includes a max raise, I mean he's he's basically almost to the same point next season. You know what I mean? Like his his raise next year will put him at like thirty two point seven million. Um, so is he really gonna forego? 14 million this year just to see his next year's salary go up by a couple million couple and a half million i don't know i mean i don't think the math is there i don't think it adds up for for hayward to wait uh some people have asked me can boston sign uh, gordon the short answer is yes the long answer uh just like we talked about with the jazz is that the boston is going to have to do some cap finagling they're going to have to let some of their free agents walk um, and even then, they're going to they're, they're probably going to have to let someone like Avery Bradley go. Um, now, is that too tough a pill to swallow? Probably not if you're talking about adding an NBA All-Star. Like, Gordon Hayward is better than Avery Bradley. This is, they, we're going to get some heartburn, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, so yes, Boston has a path to get to $30 million in cap space. Um, but, but they can't do it without a little bit of help uh, from a trade standpoint, um, and that's going to mean letting some people go. Uh, Tslay23 on Twitter asked me if Hayward can sign for less than the max to make it easier for the Jazz to put a good team around him and, and give them a chance at knocking off Golden State you know, sometime in the not-so-distant future. Um, you know, yeah, he can. He can. Let's start with that. 
Um, let's also keep in mind that we're talking about a guy who has ascended to top 25 status. Probably top 20, but like conservatively, the guy was an all-star, right? So we can say he's a top 25 player uh, right now in the NBA. Um, telling a top 25 player, hey, you should take a little less, there, there's not a lot of really sound logic to it. Um, I think I think if Hayward wanted to do it, that would be different. I don't think it could be something the Jazz could ask him about at all. Um, and frankly, I'm not sure there's a reason for Hayward to feel like he needs to do it. Um, because for all the reasons I just mentioned with the, with the salary cap holds and, and with all of those pieces in play and, and Rudy's extension kicks in, um, because of all of that, the Jazz are an over-the-cap team whether Gordon signs for $30 million a year or for $25 million a year. In other words, the Jazz are an exceptions team one way or the other. Uh, so I don't know why you'd go to a top 20 player <clears throat> and expect him to take less money so that when it doesn't impact the way that you can, your ability to go out and sign other players. Like I say, either way, the Jazz are going to be left with the mid-level exception, the biannual exception. Like they're going to be left with the same tools to acquire players. So saying that he'd be taking less to help the team isn't, again, it's, it's, it might be true in the sense that the Miller family trust isn't writing as big of checks to Gordon, but it's not functionally true. It's not true where the rubber meets the road. Where the rubber meets the road, the Jazz are an exceptions team, and they're an exceptions team no matter what Gordon Hayward's first year looks like or second year or probably third year. Um, so those are the Hayward questions. Um, hand in hand with the Hayward questions go a whole bunch of Hill questions because as a lot of people have talked about, Hayward and Hill's decisions may be, um, may be fairly intertwined this year. I, I'm personally one of those people that's of the opinion that I don't think they are as related as people think. But let's let's dig into that. So Sporadic Regularity, um, who's a great follow and a great discusser of all things jazz on Twitter, uh, he asked, at what point money-wise do you say no to Hill? Um, and that's a really that's a really big, important, meaty question for the jazz. Because uh, if you pay Hill close to his max and you pay Hayward his max and you pay Rudy what they've already agreed to pay Rudy, then you're talking about now 85 to 90 million a year for those three players. Realistically, if you're paying 90 million to those three, you have a limited ability to put impact players around them. You can have good players around them. You can have role players around them. Um, you can probably still sign Joe Ingles and you can probably extend or sign one of Hood or Nexum. Uh, you know, you can still have some good players, but in terms of like guys that really move the needle, what you're really saying with 90 million there is that you think that that's a big three that is good enough to compete for titles. Um, and maybe it is. Again, Hayward's, all, Hayward's an all-star, Gobert's all-NBA, and Hill is at the very least an above-average NBA starting point guard. Maybe you can win titles with those three if that's your if that's your core and you don't have a whole lot behind that. And by the way, I think the playoffs this year might actually kind of make that case, right? The Jazz got stellar play 
out of Hayward and Gobert. They got stellar play out of Hill when he was available. And they got occasional great performances from other guys who stepped up. So maybe you can. But if you can't, the $90 million is a lot to pay those three. And since you're already paying Rudy what you're paying Rudy, and since Gordon is going to get his max, I think it's, I think it's the Hill question. And then Swice Paradox's question is a good question. Um, at, what, at what point money-wise do you say no to Hill? I don't know the answer. I, I would say that if it's much more than 20 to 22 million annually, just because I sit here with my salary crap spreadsheet, salary cap spreadsheet, and I calculate things and I run different scenarios and I play around with, well, what if they do this? What if they keep this player but don't keep this player? What if they fill this rotation spot in the draft and fill this rotation spot with a minimum salary guy? Um, I think if it's much more than 20 to 22 million, I have a hard time making everything work on the salary sheet. So take that for what it's worth. Now, the other question is what's going to be out there for Hill? And I've talked a little bit about this on Twitter. Uh, Ken and I talked about it on our last podcast. Um, I do think that the sort of middle class of free agency, call it anybody who's not quite a star level free agent, but who is a, who would normally be above a mid-level type of free agent, I think that's the group that's going to get a little bit screwed this year. I don't think there are as many teams out there that can create big cap space as everybody thinks. Um, and it all depends on who stays with their team, and and you know, because if for every free agent who who stays home, that's cap space that goes unused somewhere else, right? So it may work out for Hill. If if Chris Paul stays home and Kyle Lowry stays home, then the Denvers and the Phillies and the Brooklyns are gonna have to are they're gonna have to bid for someone. Um but if not, I, I do think that there could be a chance that, you know, a week or two into July, Hill's looking around and, and the money that his his agents thought was going to be there isn't there. So there you go. I, I don't know. Um, someone asked if, if all of that makes the jazz likely to trade for a point guard before July 1st, and do they already know what, what George Hill wants? I think the important thing to remember with George Hill and the jazz is that they already negotiated with Hill in February on that renegotiation and extension. So they know what he's hoping for, right? Uh, they don't know what, they don't necessarily know all the market factors and how they're going to play out, but they know what Hill thought he was worth when the when they sat down across the table in February. If the Jazz were willing to give Hill the biggest extension they could give him in February, what that came down to was um was just under 30 million extra for the 3 years of work per year. It was 3 years 88 million was the maximum they could do. Um however, the way that that was allocated out cap-wise, there wasn't there wasn't any single year, you know, huge cap hit. And I think I think that could be a difference. Also, I'm not 100% convinced that the Jazz were offering the 88 million. I'm not sure they were offering the most they could. Um, and specifically, I'm, I'm not sure they were offering... I, I wouldn't be... I wouldn't assume the Jazz were offering all three years is what I would say. Um, White underscore Jones 33 on Twitter asked uh, 
if I would prefer Rubio on his current contract, two years left at around 14 to 15 million, or George Hill at four years, 25 million a year. Um, and therein lies the operative question, right? Like that's the thing. You, you, the Jazz don't. The Jazz don't have to pay George Hill just because that's his his value in the abstract. Like th- there are other options. It's a it's a supply and demand thing. So, um, so if there's something else that's as attractive for less money, the Jazz can pursue that. Um, personally, here's the thing. I've heard the Rubio thing a lot. Um, I like the Rubio option, but it would be a little crazy to not acknowledge that going from Hill to Rubio is at least a small step down. Okay. I mean, let's be fair about it. Uh, they're both, they're both good defensively. Um, Rubio probably has a slight edge just because he has crazy wingspan. Um, he steals the ball a lot. You know, he's never been part of a great defensive team. Um, and that's not necessarily his fault, but you know, it it would be more interesting if we could point to his performance, um, you know, really holding up a team defense well. Uh, but anyway, I, I do think Rubio probably grades out a little better than Hill on defense and on offense, you know, it's, it's not really close. I think George Hill is a lot better. Um, he can do a lot more things. Um, Rubio's, you know, probably got an edge on creation, and then he shoots just well enough that you don't worry about it too much. But it's not it's not like George Hill. He's just not on George Hill's level as a shooter and as a scorer and as an efficient user of possessions. Um, but but then the question becomes, you know, okay, so for the trade-off, let's let's say that let's say that Hill right now is a top ten starting point guard in the NBA and and Rubio is a top 15 starting point guard in the in the NBA. Totally arbitrary, by the way. Made those numbers up. Pulled them out of the air. But let's say that that's where they are. Is, is that upgrade worth an extra $10 million a year? Is essentially what White underscore Jones 33 is asking. Is that worth $10 million a year? Now, you also have to consider what you'd have to give up to get Rubio. And we'll talk about that when we get to the, that last catch-all category. Um, but, but I think that's the reason why the Rubio idea has some people interested. I think that's the reason why we keep hearing about it. Um, I think the fact that Minnesota is rumored to have interest in Derrick Rose is interesting um, because, it, because they're not going to sign Derrick Rose if they're still paying um, Ricky Rubio starter money, I think it makes sense for some reasons. Um, here's what I don't know. I have no idea how Hayward feels about Ricky Rubio. And if you don't think Hayward has an, has an, has an opinion, um, I guarantee you Hayward has an opinion on 450 NBA players, right? There are guys that he would love to play with. There are guys that he doesn't want to play with. You better make sure if you're Dennis Lindsay that you know which category Ricky Rubio falls into before you make any sort of deal. Uh, I got another question from Utah Jazzman47 who said, uh, who asked if I prefer Rubio or Milos Teodosic, the European point guard who's been connected to the Jazz in a lot of different rumors. Uh, again, not close. It's Rubio by a mile. Um, Teodosic is interesting. I, you know, he's an elite playmaker. 
Quinn Snyder said he might be the best passer in the world. And, and Quinn Snyder would know, right? Um, he's also a, a pretty good shooter, both in catch and shoot situations and in pull up situations. Those are, those are three pretty good skills. The two things I would say with Milos are number one, he's, he's reported to have some pretty serious defensive deficiencies and, and no one has any idea how his game is going to translate to the NBA. Um, now there's a little there's a little xenophobia behind that statement, and I and I usually kind of lash out against stuff like that in the sense that you know this guy is not some 19 year old unheard of prospect who has only played against teenagers and like Milos Teodosic is a pro. He is a professional basketball player. He's been playing against men. He's been do, he's the best basketball player not in the NBA right now on the planet. So to say oh well we don't know if he's like you got to be fair to the guy's resume. However, I've talked to many, many European transplants about this over the years. Um, Raul Lopez, Gordon Giracek, even Andre Kirilenko used to talk about that. I mean, the NBA game is different and I think Milos will do just fine, but I don't know that Milos will be starter quality and Ricky Rubio is already starter quality. So just as a default position, I, I would say, I would say Rubio would be the better option. Um, someone asked, I didn't, I didn't jot down who this came from. So sorry on this one. Someone asked, what's the plan B if Hill says no, and there's no trade for a guy like Rubio. And I think that's where the lower cost options come into play. I think that's where you sign a guy like Milos for around the mid-level exception. Um, or Darren Williams name has come up too, by the way. Um, Darren looks pretty bad so far in the finals. I think he's 0 for 9 in the finals. You know, he's contributed here and there throughout the playoffs, but in the finals he just doesn't have it, and it's kind of weird, and, um, you know, we'll keep an eye on that. But anyway, I think I think that's the point at which you say, all right, let's see if Milos plus Exum or Darren Williams plus Exum or some other guy in that tier plus Exum is good enough for, for Gordon Hayward. Um, and, and that makes me a little nervous to say, although, you know, Gordon Hayward has been pretty vocal about, um, being impressed by Exum's progress and development. So, so I'm not, you know, maybe that's not a deal breaker, but it would certainly make Dennis, I think a little less confident as he drives over to Gordon's place at 1159 on June 30th. Brian Innes says, okay, assuming Hill comes back, what's the plan at backup point guard? Is it Exum or is that where the Jazz are interested in the Miloses and the Darren Williams of the world? Um, and that's another good question. I, I think the I think the answer to this question I, I think that right now the Jazz feel like Dante Exum is better not with the ball. Um, Dennis Lindsay made some comments right after the season ended where he basically said that, you know, long-term they feel like he tracks to being a point guard, but right now they're, they're having success with him off the ball. And it feels like that's what they're going to do. Now, if you were paying attention to Dante Exum's exit interview, he said, I'm ready to contribute now and I'm ready to be a point guard now. And I don't think that comment was by accident or by coincidence. I think Dante knows that there's this positional debate going on. And I think he wants to make it clear 
that he thinks he should have the ball and he thinks he should be a decision maker and a facilitator. And, uh, and so that'll be interesting. I mean, if, if the Jazz re-sign Hill and go and get Milos, that's, you know, that's telling Dante, hey, X, when you play, you're going to play shooting guard, right? Um, so that'll be an interesting one to see play out. I, Brian, I don't know the answer to your question. I know I just answered your question by explaining your question to you. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think... I think that they're talking to Milos and guys like Milos in case they can't get in case they can't get something bigger done. I think they I just hearing Dennis Lindsay talk, I still think they want Exum to be at least a part-time point point guard so that he's developing those skills. I could be wrong though. Coogs1900 asks, are we going into next year with Exum, Neto, Mac, and Hill? Uh, I would say no. I would say no to that one. One of the at least one of those four guys will be gone next season. I can pretty much guarantee that. Um, they're not keeping all four. Um, Neto is non-guaranteed. Mack and Hill are both unrestricted free agents. Um, I can't imagine a scenario where all four are back. Um, and then someone asked me, and I'm not going to, this one was asked to me privately, so I won't say who asked it because I haven't asked his permission, but someone said, is not having a point guard locked in by July 1st and having to negotiate with Hill and Hayward at the same time, is that a doomsday scenario? Is that, is that going to cost the Jazz in their negotiations with Hayward? I've heard that viewpoint a lot, and, and including from some really smart people who, who I agree with 90% of the time. So like I, I get where that comes from. But if you think about it, what that says is that Gordon would rather have any point guard locked in longer term than have George Hill still as a possibility but have to wait a day or two for him to make a decision. And I think Gordon's smarter than that. I I think you can go to Gordon's house at midnight on July 1st and say, hey man, here's our plan A for point guard. And, you know, give us a day or two and we'll figure it out. And if that doesn't work out, here's our plan B. And if that doesn't work out, here's our plan C. And I'm not saying he's going to pull out his pen and sign the contract right then and there, but I think he would get that. So so my personal thought on that one is, no, I don't think the Jazz have to come up with something by July 1st. In fact, I think that saying that the Jazz have to come up with something by July 1st is probably just a creative way that people have come up with to say that maybe the Jazz shouldn't pay George Hill $25 million and they should move on and find a cheaper option. I don't know. Take that for what it's worth. Um, all right. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this first installment. Uh, we still have a bunch left, though. So um, part two, we will cover some trade things. Um, I got some questions about Favors value, Hood's value, what the Jazz can expect an Alec Burks trade to look like. Um, and then a bunch of miscellaneous questions, including I get a lot of questions about specific players around the league. Um, Eric Bledsoe, Rubio, Dragic, Jordan Clarkson, Carmelo, Nikola Mirotic. So we'll talk about some of those guys. We'll talk about Boris Diaw. We'll talk about Joe Ingles. We'll talk about all those things uh, when we next catch you on the Salt City Hoops podcast. That one's dropping soon. Thanks for listening.